today on Understanding Immigration, National Security. It only takes a handful of people to really wreak havoc on the nation. I mean, 19 terrorists were involved in 9-11, and that was the deadliest attack on U.S. soil. It changed U.S. history forever. It changed world history forever. We're not able to stop them from getting into the country in the first place. It becomes much more difficult when they're already here to try and track them down, especially if we don't have, again, an entry exit system and we have no idea if they're still valid in the country or not. Coming to you from Washington, D.C., you are now listening to FAIR's Understanding Immigration Podcast. Hey there, and welcome back to another episode of FAIR's Understanding Immigration Podcast. This is Matthew Tregesser from FAIR's Press Shop. And today I'm joined by Preston Hennekins from our lobbying team. Unfortunately, Spencer Raley, our third host in this podcast, couldn't make it today, but we are still excited to bring you a jam-packed episode. Today marks our ninth episode in the Understanding Immigration podcast series. For those listening for the first time, this is a podcast designed to educate you on a wide variety of important and high-profile immigration topics. We've done a lot of material on remittances, the border wall, DACA, and really a wide range of topics. We understand some of these topics are complex, so we try to break these down into plain terms. Anyways, we have a great discussion today. We'll be discussing national security and how immigration plays a role in it. So let's get started right away. Preston, how is national security tied to immigration? So national security is tied to immigration in a number of ways. You know, a lot of people have said that Customs and Border Patrol is really our you know, first line of defense against external threats to the United States. Uh, and there's also, you know, just uh, we've had countless examples throughout the years of when immigration controls have failed us and, you know, foreign nationals have come into the country uh, and done terrible things. Uh, and if our immigration controls had been working or if we had had different procedures in place, you know, maybe those could have been could have been stopped. Um, one of the, the biggest glaring examples, you know, that we can go ahead and get out of the way with that is with uh, 9-11. Some of those uh, individuals who ended up committing those terrorist attacks were from outside the country. They came in on, you know, different visas, overstayed their visas. Uh, and so if we'd had a way to, you know, detect them and track them while they were in the U.S., just because they were overstaying their visas, you know, that could have been avoided, um, which so that's that's one of the biggest glaring ways. But um, I'm going to go through kind of some of the permanent immigration uh, issues with national security. So these are you know people going through green cards who are intending to become citizens of the United States. Um, and the first one is the diversity visa lottery. Uh, this was a program that was made in the 1990s which pretty much it started out as a carve out for uh, Irish immigrants. Um, there weren't a lot of, of Irish people coming to the U.S. and the Irish lobby in the U.S. wanted there to be kind of a special way for them to get here outside of the normal process of immigration. So what the visa lottery does is it allows people from countries that don't have a lot of immigrants in the U.S. to essentially just apply to randomly get a green card. There is, there are absolutely no real restrictions on whether, you know, on, on education or if they're working, if they have a job, nothing like that. They pretty much just apply. It's drawn at random and about 50 to 55,000 people get this every year. And they essentially, it's essentially like winning, you know, winning the lottery in, in normal circumstances. You know, you're talking about people from countries who really would have no other avenue 
to getting American citizenship. And it's pretty much just given to them because of this program. And we've had some issues with this in the past. Um, in December 2017, you may remember there was an attempted bombing of the New York City subway. And as facts of the case came out, we learned that it was the perpetrator was a Bangladeshi immigrant uh, who could never have entered the country if it weren't for the visa lottery and also through chain migration, uh, which we'll talk about in a second. He arrived after his aunt or uncle, we're not sure which, won the visa lottery and then in turn sponsored his mother for an immigrant visa. And she was able to bring him over as a child, even though he was 20 years old. And so this guy mm-hmm. who had no no real ties to the United States uh, was clearly deranged and clearly you know, hated the country that he was living in. Uh, goes on to attempt a terrorist attack in the New York subway, which is one of the most highly trafficked public transit systems in the country. Um, And he would not have ever been in the United States permanently had it not been uh, for the visa for his, you know, aunts or uncle winning the visa lottery just by random. And then that takes us into chain migration, which is the process by which people come to the United States because of their family relationships. And, That is primarily where our immigrants come from. The vast majority of people who get green cards to this country are not coming because of their skills or their education or even because of random programs like the visa lottery. They're coming because they're someone's brother, they're someone's sister, uh, someone's child, that kind of thing. So, you know, we, we really, the biggest issue there is that we really don't know too much about the people that come over on chain migration, other than the facts they're related to a citizen or legal permanent resident. And uh, the White House actually released a fact sheet back after this had happened in December 2017, where they were able to find at least eight terrorist examples of terrorists who came to the U.S. through chain migration, and at least seven who were able to come uh, through the visa lottery. And, uh, you know, a lot of opponents will say, oh my God, out of the thousands that come over every year. There are only eight or only seven. And true, that's a fair point, but one is too many. And really these programs make zero sense for, you know, a a modern country with a developed economy like the United States. None of our Western allies have anything close to a immigration system that we do. They have a merit, they have merit-based immigration where the people that are coming over are really actively trying to come over and immediately benefit the country by working, by studying. And what we have is just kind of, you know, you have one person who does that, but then they bring over every relative they can. And often, you know, those relatives, you know, they don't really know too much about the U.S. other than it's a good place to live. And so, you know, they come over and we really have no clue what to make of them when they're here. You know, they might come to the United States and hate it and hate the, you know, hate the culture, hate the people, um, and in all, you know, they might be, they might come over and find that it's difficult to work and all kinds of other things and become very disillusioned. And so, you know, that's, that's a, um, just a system that we need to, I think, take a different look at. Uh, and then the final example that I'll talk about is, is foreign students, um, which has become a big talking point in, in recent weeks. Um, we know for a fact that China, which sends over the majority of students on the F1 visa uses the visa for espionage. They have spies um, for the communist party 
of China who are studying in American universities, especially in STEM, where they're getting you know valuable knowledge um, from the top universities in the U.S. and they're taking that back to China. And Bill Evanina, the director of the National Counterintelligence and Security Center, said that China poses, uh, and I'm quoting here from the Washington Times, poses a broad-ranging foreign intelligence threat that includes the use of academics, students, cyber espionage, and human agents to steal secrets from the government and the private sector. And that is something that I, you know, I think we'd be naive to think that it's only China doing that. I I wouldn't be surprised at all if Iran, if Russia, uh, other countries, even our allies, Israel has has done this in the past, uh, where you're using this program to get young people who are, you know, who you can recruit into these, you know, agencies back home and send them to the U.S. for schooling. Uh, And I think that's a, a huge blind spot uh, in our national security. Right. I mean, you, you obviously touched on a, a lot of different immigration programs there, but you know, I, I think it's important, you know, t- for listeners out there to understand, you know, the vast majority of the people coming through chain migration or through the visa lottery system or OPT are probably not going to be a, a terrorist or someone jeopardizing our national security. But as you mentioned, it only takes a handful of people to really wreak havoc on the nation. I mean, 19 terrorists were involved in 9-11 and that was the deadliest attack on U.S. soil. It changed U.S. history forever. It changed world history forever. And so, as you said, one is too many. And you really got to mitigate these risks by, you know, revising and reforming, especially these three programs, OPT program, the visa lottery program, and chain migration. And, you know, going back to the 9-11 discussion, which is the worst attack on U.S. soil in history, it reveals the consequences of our lax immigration laws and, you know, not enforcing these laws. Why was our government handing three of these terrorist driver's licenses when their student visas had suspended? You know, why weren't we tracking down these people who had their uh, visas expired? We didn't do anything about that. And then, you know, these these individuals are coming from terror-prone countries like Saudi Arabia, Egypt, Lebanon, Yemen. And it's unfathomable to me that we couldn't have data or intelligence suggesting that, you know, there was a link between them and and terror. I mean, it's, again, it goes to show you that, especially at that time, it was just the consequences of lax immigration laws. Yeah. And a lot of this does kind of come back to really the inability of Congress to do its job. Congress uh, mandated years and years and years ago that we need a working entry exit visa system. Um, and this was one of the biggest recommendations that came out of the 9-11 Commission um, when it came to immigration was that we have to have a way to track when people come into the country on a non-immigrant visa. So if they're a tourist or if they are a student um, and we have to know when that visa expires. And frankly, we don't have that right now. And so there are hundreds of thousands of people who have become illegal aliens and are just staying in the country simply because they were able to get a tourist visa and they just never left. And that is such a huge issue for national security because a lot of these people can, can get tourist visas because it's, you know, they're only come, there's only supposed to be here for two weeks uh, that they otherwise couldn't, you know, they otherwise might not be able to get another visa because under further scrutiny for, say, an immigrant visa, during their interview, some, some red flags would pop up. And that just doesn't happen uh, when, you're, when you're just applying for a tourist visa. So I think the entry mandating and actually implementing the entry exit program for tracking visas would be a huge step forward um, and would really you know, kind of 
close that blind spot a little bit that we have. Right. And it's, it's proven that even in recent years, we have harmful actors, terrorists trying to get into the country and U.S. Customs and Border Protection, CBP, has caught these individuals. But it, it goes to show you that you know, the threat is still there. It is not going away whatsoever. Um, and to put this you know, in actual numbers, CBP in fiscal year 2017, which is the latest data available on this particular um, uh, statistic, revealed that 3,700, 3,700 known or suspected terrorists were prevented from traveling to or entering the U.S. by land or air. And again, 3,700 people, you know, maybe that's small compared to the number of people actually, you know, trying to cross into the country uh, annually. But again, it's still, you don't need that many people to wreak havoc on the country and commit an attack as big as 9-11. Yeah, exactly. It only takes one. Um, and we've seen how deadly lone wolf attacks have become you you don't need these huge cells of people anymore to carry these out all you need is one person with a computer uh and the will to do harm if we're not able to stop them from getting into the country in the first place it becomes much more difficult when they're already here to try and track them down especially uh if we don't have again an entry exit system and we have no idea if they're still valid in the country or not Right. I, I wanted to ask you, what are your thoughts on potential threats coming through the southern border? So I know a lot of people assume, you know, people will come legally, perhaps from, you know, a country very far away. But let's not forget, our southern border is still very porous. You know, I know the Trump administration has tried to build the border wall more expansively, but the issue is they've been stymied by courts and activist groups. And so, you know, the border wall is still not as built as it needs to be. You know, right now, because of the coronavirus, we've had new border restrictions to curb the number of people coming to our country, but that's not going to be permanent. So do you think that there is a potential for terror threats or national security threats coming through our southern border? Because this is something there's not really there's not been a, a terror attack resulting from someone coming through the border. But, you know, I, you would think that there's still the potential for it. Right. And, you know, even going beyond the idea of this this mass terror attack, because that, that is a very rare event, but catastrophic. Um, and I think the southern mm-hmm. border offers a much more kind of nuanced threat where, you know, we have such a porous border that is allowing cartels and, and smugglers to bring drugs into the country, which fuels inner city violence, which fuels violence on the border. Uh, it perpetuates human trafficking and sexual uh, slavery. And, you know, if we if we're not able to stop it at the border, uh, again, it becomes much more difficult to stop it once it's in the country. And so I think that's more of the threat at the southern border is stopping these groups from bringing in drugs that contribute uh, to violence in the United States, stopping human smuggling and sexual slavery at the border and preventing that from getting into the United States. Uh, and, and that's just something that is, you know, I think every normal person wants to see. And I think, you know, if you talk about one of probably the least controversial jobs that Border Patrol does, it's that it's, you know, rescuing people that are locked in cars who are going to be trafficked throughout the United right. States. It's stopping pounds and pounds of drugs from going into the inner cities and fueling the violence that has been going on there for decades. And so I think that's really the biggest threat that we face at the Southern border. Right. And also let's not forget about, you know, the dangerous MS 13 uh, gang members who are coming through the Southern border. 
and, you know, and taking advantage of our asylum laws, perhaps not as much as uh, last year when we really had, you know, again, uh, May's high of 144,000 illegal alien apprehensions. But again, a lot of these people are coming from countries prone to MS-13 activity and they show up to the border with not really any identification. We don't really know much about them. And then they get apprehended and then released into the interior of the country. And even look at our backyard here, Preston, in, in the DMV area. You know, there's so much crime committed by these MS-13 criminals. I mean, if, if you just do a Google search in, in Montgomery County or Prince George County, these sanctuary counties that you know take in these individuals, I mean, it, it goes to show you that people are also taking advantage of, of our generous asylum system. And, you know, once they're in, you know, they're committing these really vicious and heinous acts that, again, could be prevented with tighter asylum laws, which I think we're on the track to actually get there. Um, I know in recent days, the Trump administration has actually created a new plan to hopefully tighten these loopholes. But again, that's something that at least within the last year ha- has been a significant problem, especially with the MS-13. Exactly. And I think what's really important to note here is that MS-13 is not they're not terrorizing, you know, suburban communities. You know, they're not terrorizing the Georgetown area of Washington, D.C., if you will. They're terrorizing the immigrant communities that they live in. And so, you know, you would think the people who institute these sanctuary policies think that they're helping, but they're not because these gangs are terrorizing fellow immigrants. Or if they're, you know, it's, many of them are, are citizens that have been born here who fall into the gang lifestyle, and they're, but they're still terrorizing their communities. And, you know, that's, I, I feel like that's something that no one really is ever willing to talk about on the other side is, you know, what are you doing letting these people in when they're going into the very communities that you pretend to care about? And are bringing drugs and crime and death in many cases. And that's exactly the, the counties in Northern Virginia, in Maryland, and in DC that have seen MS 13 violence. You know, it's out, it's completely out of control. And I think anyone in those communities would tell you that. Right. So, you know, we've highlighted a lot of examples here. We've highlighted kind of our systems that are allowing this behavior and allowing these people to come into the country. And, and the wrong manner. But, you know, what can we do? What can Congress do? What can the White House do to really, you know, change these laws or reform these laws to make sure that the national interest is kept and also to make sure that our national security is also strong and fortified? Right. So uh, I know I'm going to sound like a broken, broken record here. Uh, the most obvious one is to fund some sort of entry exit system for visa tracking. Uh, that would be uh, such a helpful tool for law enforcement to know who has overstayed their visa, who still, you know, has an active visa and the people that have overstayed, you know, we're able to quickly identify them and remove them from the country. That I think is so important and is, is, would be such a helpful tool for preventing a lot of, of these issues because we've seen people on visa overstays have have done horrible things and it's just common sense. Many other countries do that. Congress themselves has said that we need to do it. They've just never ponied up the money for it. So that's number one. The second thing that the administration has done a good job of is the use of travel bans from countries that have a significant amount of terrorist activity, um, and particularly countries where the government is really non-existent. So, uh, for example, Yemen, Somalia, Syria, Libya, Chad, you know, these are countries that do not have a functioning central government. Um, it's essentially anarchy. And simply, you you have no clue who the people are that are coming over. There's no real 
collection of crime records in those countries. And it's, it's frankly, until they're able to have stable leadership and, and stable central government, there is no reason that we should have people coming in from those countries just because we frankly don't know anything about them. Um, you, know, you, you might have someone who on paper has a clean record, but who's keeping records in Somalia? Right. You know what I mean? I mean, it's, it's common sense. I, I want to add to your point there. I think when this, the travel ban first came out, a lot of the open borders lobby and people who are so vehemently opposed to this saw this as a thing where Trump was anti everyone from these countries. And that's not the case. The issue was with the governments of their countries, not cooperating with our government, providing us with the intelligence we needed. And it's for our own safety precautions. And it's not like we are against the people of these countries in any way. It was with their government. And as you said, they, it's total anarchy in a lot of these countries. And, you know, you, you need to keep the interests of your own citizens safe and, and prioritized. But um, again, it, it's not so much with the people of these countries, it's it's the government, the government structure. Well, and of course, the irony, too, is that these are all countries identified by the Obama administration as, as problem countries. And they considered um, even you know, kind of tightening visa restrictions on these countries. So to say that this was Trump just being a xenophobic monster is is pretty funny when you consider that they just pretty much took the list that they inherited from the Obama era Department of Homeland Security and ran with right. it. Um, so that's pretty rich that people are, you know, are able to accuse the Trump administration of being xenophobic or racist towards these countries when his predecessor had his eye on the same countries as well. Right. Well, uh, what about your thoughts on, on the OPT program? You, you mentioned that at the beginning of this episode, but is there a way to reform that to ensure that, you know, we're not having, you know, so much espionage or kind of, should we, is it just reducing the number of, of people we allow in this program or just scrapping it? I mean, what, what are your thoughts yeah, on that? Yeah, so OPT is interesting. And for our listeners out there, um, the OPT program, which stands for Optional Practical Training, uh, is a program instituted by the Bush administration uh, which allows graduates on the F-1 visa, the student visa, to work in the U.S. Um, for up to three years after graduation. And it's become essentially just a, che- you know, a cheap foreign labor program because the companies that hire OPT graduates do not have to pay payroll taxes on them, which saves them a ton of money. Uh, and it also, you know, so none of these workers are contributing to Social Security or Medicare or Medicaid, which you know, our programs that are very, you know, a huge amount of our tax revenue goes to support these programs. Uh, And so when you have, for instance, let's say, you know, a Chinese student who has graduated uh, and who then gets to go work tax-free at Amazon or IBM or Northrop Grumman or any of these, you know, huge companies. um, And then that you know, same student that OBT grad is going to go back to China and more than likely has ties to the, to the communist party and is going to divulge some of that information. And this isn't some crackpot conspiracy theory. We have national security experts telling us this is happening. So it's not like, you know, we're just conjuring this up out of thin air. Our national security experts and our intelligence agencies are saying this is happening. And fortunately, you know, there's ways that we could stop this. You know, we could, for instance, OPT is not a congressionally mandated program. We could get rid of it today if we wanted to. And then even, you know, we're able to restrict what, you know, what nationalities um, are eligible for student visas. 
And I think it's clear that we really should not be allowing the students of our major geopolitical rival to come study in the United States. It just makes no sense. Right. I was going to add to your comment back there. Um, in 2018, I remember in a congressional testimony, uh, U.S. Attorney General John Demers, he brought the same point where I'm going to paraphrase here. But he said the Chinese regime is intent on acquiring Western knowledge through uh, their behaviors and they're trying to exploit features of a free market economy and an open society like the United States. And so it's, it's not just, like you said, a, a conspiracy or an unfounded opinion. I mean, it, there is documented evidence of this. And um, in fact, I think one great example of this actually happening was in 2017 when Chinese officials breached into the credit reporting company called Equifax, Equifax in which 150 million Americans had their personal information stolen. Yeah, it was essentially a third. A third of everyone with a social security number had had their uh, number yeah, stolen. Yeah, and so it's it's documented. And you know, out of the 1.1 million student visa holders that came uh, into our country in 2018, 370,000, approximately one third, were Chinese nationals. And I guess the question becomes: Is this an appropriate amount? Should it be reduced? Um, and I think now, given you know, kind of this Cold War mentality we have with China over the COVID response, um, over trade relations, over the South China Sea conflict, I don't know. I think that this has to be a, a serious question that needs to be discussed more. Yeah, and I can say I, I'm just speaking for myself personally. I don't see why we are allowing Chinese students to study in the United States, especially in STEM and in you know, environments where they may be able to help China's military or China, China's intelligence services. It makes no sense. And, I, you know, I don't want to hear that, you know, oh, we're, it's a global society now. I'm sorry, China views the United States as an enemy. We should do the same. Right. So I, I think a lot of those, you know, these are the potential threats that without reforming our immigration system, you know, we're going to see whether it's Chinese espionage or perhaps through our southern border with MS-13 members or perhaps you know, even Iran has uh, its proxy Islamist terror group Hezbollah operating in, in Central and South America. Um, or maybe it's, you know, if we don't have the biometric entry exit system, we're going to have people from terror prone countries come here, lose track of them, and then who knows what happens. So I think, you know, you highlighted some great examples of what we can change to really enhance national security and the public safety of our country. And I think the Trump administration has definitely prioritized these items, but you know, we're still a long ways away, and, and in part due to an inept Congress, due to activist judicial courts. So um, I guess all we can do is, you know, keep the, the gas pedal down, keep going. But, you know, this is a serious issue that should be a high priority for a lot of Americans. And, you know, I, I think Trump and the administration have absolutely taken interest in this. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, you can only hope that they act now um, and not act in a reaction to an event like a subway bombing or mass shooting, that kind of thing. You know, we have to be proactive here. Uh, and, and again, Congress just needs to get its act together, needs to find common ground on issues that protect all Americans. And I think it's as simple as that. All right. Well, that's all the time we have today. I hope all you listeners out there enjoy this discussion and learn something new about national security and immigration and how they're so closely related. Um, as a reminder, we'll be releasing a new episode every other Monday, and we urge you to recommend this podcast to your friends by sharing it on Facebook or Twitter or whatever social media platform you have. Again, this is called Understanding Immigration, and the episodes can be found on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, 
And they're also placed on our website at fairus.org and also on our Twitter feed, which can be found. Uh, our handle is at fair immigration. And we hope everyone's continuing to stay safe during these turbulent times. Until next time, this has been Understanding Immigration presented by FAIR.